This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Such a smart guest, Sam Harris. One of the smartest guests I've had on. He's, this is his third time on. And we were talking about his book, Making Sense, Conversations on Consciousness, Morality, and the Future of Humanity. And we touched on all of those topics, both the good, the bad, and the ugly of society's morality, our views on consciousness, and the future of humanity, where we're going both culturally and scientifically. But to start off this podcast, I knew Sam is a smart guy, and I wanted to ask him for a bit of advice. I was going through something that day, and he helped me out. And here's the podcast. So I have, once again, Sam Harris on the podcast. He just wrote a new book called Making Sense. And it's basically his best conversations from his podcast, which are completely fascinating. And many of these conversations have blown my mind. But also, Sam, first off, congratulations on putting the book out. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here, James. Nice to talk to you again. I was amazed, too, by the accolades on the back. You have Ricky Gervais, Andrew Yang, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher. How'd you get all these people to, to say how great this book is? Uh, well, actually, so, so the book is, as you said, a, um, a based on the podcast conversations, which, which we then transformed a little bit. I mean, I, I, I improved my side of the conversation and the guest improved uh, theirs. And it really becomes the, the final version of these exchanges and we just we each got a chance to take our feet out of our mouths and just sharpen things up but um the people who blurb the book were essentially blurbing the podcast i mean many of them i think possibly all of them have been on on the podcast so you know ricky gervais and bill maher they're they've been guests on the podcast so they they know what they're talking about and you know you deal with so many interesting topics like in this book you talk about everything from consciousness to uh, morality to racism to cognitive biases to the idea that uh, we might be in a simulation. And even the, that particular discussion, which uh, in some ways is a wacky kind of conversation, you guys really connect the dots in such an interesting way that it it, it seems like almost a normal thing to consider, hey, not only are we probably in a simulation, but this is how it makes sense. And it's not even that big a deal that we were in a simulation. And, and I found many of the conversations that way that the, you would take these esoteric topics and bring it back to, to earth in some way. But I want to kind of, well, actually, I want to start off on a tangent and ask you a, a semi-personal question. Sure. I've seen, you know, throughout the years, you know, you've written all these books, like you wrote a book on Islam, you've written a book on, you know, on lying, you've written a book on free will. And throughout the years, whether it's the podcast or the books, you've gotten a lot of hate occasionally. And just today in particular, I happen to be the focus of a lot of hate for some reason. Oh, yeah. and, what, what, what do people hate you for today? <laughs> as opposed to yesterday. Yeah. So uh, recently I wrote an article, which was just it was just my personal view. Plus it was very fact-based on, 
I, and the title was extreme. New York City is dead forever. Here's why. And I present a bunch of facts that I didn't quite, I couldn't quite see myself through to the solution. And it, it's not important, all the reasons, but it was just economically, New York City is going to have rising deficits at lower than ever revenues. And these are the kind of problems cities have mm. when those, when that situation happens and, and there's no easy solution. So I wrote this article. It got much bigger than I thought it would. And then today, Jerry Seinfeld wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, not even trashing the article, but just kind of personally trashing me throughout oh, the entire op-ed. Yeah, that's, that's no good. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And, and he didn't address anything in the article, just mm. basically, you know, was upset. And so I'm getting an enormous tidal wave of hate, death threats you know, well, stuff that I've gotten before, but, but, you know, it's, it's a little enhanced and I'm getting the other side as well. But of course you focus on the negative more. I'm just curious how you have dealt with that in, in the past. Well, there, there are sort of two levels of dealing with it. One is emotionally and the other is just practically, practically speaking. I, the easy part, I, I just take, I take security seriously. I take, you know, I don't advertise where I live, I, you know, when I, when I have a public event, which, you know, under COVID that doesn't happen, but in the normal course of things, if I do a public event, you know, I, I take security seriously and, you know, it's just, it just comes with the territory. I have touched controversial issues and I've touched even just issues that are not especially polarizing, but which attract their fair share of, of lunatic interest, right? So you don't know whether the person who poses a threat to you is is ideological or just crazy, but both, you know, both are a problem. So I, I've I've taken practical steps to be as as um uh you know careful and and secure as possible there. And then I just more or less forget about that problem. That's easy enough to do, provided you've you've been you, you again you've taken the the practical steps you know the prudent steps you you should, but then there's the this emotional component which I find is easier and easier to deal with and and becomes a non-issue as long as you are are clear that your intentions are are good, which is to say you're you know the, what what you're putting out there is coming from a place of actually wanting a better world right you actually care about people you you want society to to function well you you're not a morbidly selfish or narcissistic person i mean it's, it's it, you care about the right things right so you're you're actually it's coming from a good place even if some people are finding what you're saying offensive or or you know otherwise inflammatory um and uh then there's just the the question of whether you're actually reasoning honestly, right? So whether you're whether you're putting in the work to be, you know, coherent and not um, obviously misled by confirmation bias or wishful thinking or or some other cognitive error. And um, what, as long as you're doing those two things, which you, you want to do anyway, even if you have no public right. platform. And you're just trying to reason your way through life and, and figure out how to live a good life uh, and not bump into hard objects all the time. You, you want to be reasoning carefully and you want to be well-intentioned with respect to other people. I mean, you, you'd rather 
love people and have them love you than than hate people and have them hate you, right? So putting your house in order uh, to whatever degree you can and should, you know, again, this is this is a project that awaits anyone, whether they are on social media or not, or whether they're, they're publishing anything publicly or not, um, that solves the problem of of really being blown around by by how things are received, right? Because it, it just in the case where you you put something out there which was born of you know actual bad intentions, right? Where you were you know you were being a jerk, you were you know you, you were treating someone with a without even a modicum of, of charity, you know, you were, you were straw manning their argument, their, their argument's actually much better than you were given a credit for, and you were just kind of maligning them. You put that out there, and then you get blowback, well, then you feel shitty, and you, you should feel shitty, right? I mean, you're being, you know, sloppy, you're, you're spreading you know, toxic waste in our information space, uh, and you shouldn't do that, and, you know, Twitter lets you have it, and you know that that's fine, uh, and the, the message there is stop doing that, right? But 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 if you're being impeccable, you know, if if what you put out is honest and strives to be accurate, it's not to say that you can't make mistakes. But if if you make an honest mistake, you can just apologize. You know, there's no friction around apologizing for an honest mistake, even if it's an honest mistake one makes in the midst of an argument with someone who's who's reliably dishonest and 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 malicious right like I, I've made apologies uh, to my to my enemies to my genuine enemies I mean people who work hard to be my enemies right and it's mm-hmm. not that I'm you know it's not that I have an enemies list and I'm I'm maintaining it but there are people out there who get up every day it seems trying to figure out how to destroy my reputation right they, they post whole you know podcasts, derivative of my podcast just telling people that I'm you know a racist or a you know an Islamophobe or you know whatever whatever their particular hobby horse is and they will you know lie about things I've published and they'll 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 even circulate audio from my podcast who has been uh, which has been edited to make it sound like I'm saying the opposite of what in fact I was saying in context and they'll promulgate that to their audiences. Um, so there, there are real malicious assholes out there. But if I get something wrong about what they believe, I'll apologize for it, right? As, as long as I'm playing by the rule, the rules that I would want others to play by, I can sleep totally peacefully at night, even when things are lighting up against me, because I know what is lighting up is based on ignorance or confusion or bias or you know some other derangement of of other people uh, which i in the end am not responsible for and and, and you know I, I you just you can't control the outcome uh, you know in that space you you can really only control the the kinds of intentions you act on and 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 how you act i guess you know it's it's interesting because so i of course live in new york city i have five kids, many, several go to school still in New York City. I own a storefront business in New York City. So the the future of this major city that I have was born in, lived around all my life is very important to me. And so 
although who knows, you know, as you meant, there's, there's cognitive biases in almost everything we do. I do think I've researched the facts. Everything is more or less sourced, or at least I know the sources. And I'm, I'm just surprised at the personal vitriol mm. against me when I straight out say that I love New York City in the article, but here are some real problems. And then I also see it becomes this virtual signaling thing where many people who, who I know all of a sudden jump on the bandwagon against because this is an opportunity for them to do so safely. And I don't know, it's just, I feel flustered by the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and, and you have, you might have been, I don't know what kind of fan of Jerry Seinfeld you were, but it's... Yeah, I'm a fan of Jerry Seinfeld as well. I, I own a comedy club. Right, yeah, right. So it's always anno annoying when somebody who you greatly admire takes the wrong end of, of something and um, uh, seems not to admire you as a result. Um, I, again, I haven't seen this. I, I didn't see your article. I haven't seen the pushback, but I, I will look with interest. But, uh, you know, I know what it's like to to have someone um, uh, you, you really do admire decide based on something they've read, in, in this case about me, that, that uh, uh, you know, that I'm a jerk uh, or or evil. And um, it's just annoying because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to clean up that mess. And sometimes you, you can't, I mean, sometimes you just discover in someone you admire, they're, um, they're truly blockheaded on whatever topic. And this, this is the encounter I had with Batman on, on real time. You know, it's, it's like, I, I admired Ben Affleck as an actor and a director, and would, I would have much preferred to meet him and, and ha have a, a totally happy encounter of, you know, mutual admiration. But what I got was him essentially calling me racist on television. And, um, you know, the, the blowback from that was pretty ferocious and, and annoying. Uh, and, you know, it, it didn't get any better in the green room afterwards. You know, it's, it was, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are not friends um, as a result of that encounter. And, and uh, that's just the way, it, the way it goes. And And what did you, like the day afterwards, because I've seen that video of you and Ben Affleck, like the day afterwards, what was sort of the blowback from from that that video? Um, well, there was a it it at that point made me uh, more visible in the Muslim community. So this was in response to my uh, well, at that point, I, I think I still was working on this book with Majid Nawaz. Uh, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And uh, if any, anyone reads that book, you'll see that it, this is by no means a an expression of animus against Muslims as people, uh, much less uh, people who come from Middle Eastern countries. I mean, this is a this is a discussion of the consequences of specific ideas, like the idea of martyrdom, the idea of jihad. Uh, the idea of you know apostasy or blasphemy being a a killing offense, and this is something I, I debated with with Majid Nawaz, who who was a a once an, a Muslim extremist, not not a terrorist, not a, not a proper jihadist, but uh, the next best thing, a, a proper Islamist who was trying to figure out how to get uh, a a theocratic uh, regime installed in places like Pakistan. 
he was put in prison in Egypt for four years for his troubles. And anyway, he, he's a, now since a, an utterly rational, secular, well-intentioned cosmopolitan person, uh, having undergone various transformations in his outlook. And so we had a debate slash conversation, you know, both in public, uh, you know, in various, uh, you know, live events, but also we, we, we did it in the form of a book. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of thing I was focused on then when Ben Affleck, you know, ambushed me. I mean, ironically that the book I was then talking about on, on real time had to do with meditation and, and, the nature of consciousness and had nothing to do with with Islam or or religious conflict, but um, you know our conversation got sidetracked because clearly someone in his orbit had told him that you know I, I was a bigot for saying uh, critical things about the wonderful religion of Islam, uh, which is you know which we as liberals must believe is no different from any other religion, uh, not even slightly. Uh, it, it's the, it has to be the same as Mormonism and Anglicanism and any other religion, and, and it must be a sheer accident that you see people being hunted to the ends of the earth for drawing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, or you can reliably provoke riots in a dozen countries for uh, merely uh, threatening to burn the Quran or, or even naming a teddy bear uh, the wrong name, as happened in Nigeria. Uh, so it, it's... Um, I mean, it's, it, it was at that point and is at this quite delusional to think that religions aren't different with different consequences. I mean, they, they obviously are. Um, but on the left then and, and even more so now probably, making these kinds of distinctions uh, gets you branded as a racist, as though a set of religious ideas had anything in principle to do with any race, right? Which obviously, you know, Islam is not a race you know, you can convert to it in a few minutes. You can convert away from it even faster than that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was the, the immediate result was to be put on the radar of um, millions and millions of very confused, very doctrinaire uh, uh, religious people who thought that Ben Affleck, by simply shrieking racist uh, like an imbecile, uh, not following any of the the argument that I or or Bill were making in that context, um, they thought he was just just the white knight who rode into the defense of Muslims everywhere, uh, and it was amazing to discover. I mean, the most the most depressing thing to discover in the aftermath of that, uh, which is a lesson that many people on the far left seem seems seem to have learned indelibly at this point, is that merely calling someone racist. Just using the word racist, I think the, the formulation he used, he didn't, he didn't call it, he didn't say, you guys are racist. He just said, it's racist in response to the, the things we were saying. Mm -hmm. uh, to merely use the word convinces half of any audience that it's true. That, it, that not only has, not only has the, the charge been made, but somehow racism has been successfully detected. So I, I can't tell you how many people uh, responded to that as though Ben had, you know, as, in the, as though he were some kind of, you know, investigative journalist, you know, working into, into the, the wee hours of the morning, had successfully exposed our racism, right, by merely alleging that, that the argument we were making was racist. 
Um, and it is, I mean, it is the sheerest uh, stupidity that, that that allows someone to land there, and it's so dysfunctional. I mean, now it's at the time. I think that was 2014. Now it's even more toxic, right? I mean, now the, social media is just uh, absolutely poisoned by this effect that, that you can just make the allegation against someone and it sticks. Uh, and we have to find some way to climb out of this because it's, it's making a conversation about anything of substance, whether it's you know the, you know, the, the fate of a city uh, you know, or things like wealth inequality, um, you know, police violence, uh, epidemiology. I mean, which is the most basic facts of how to to respond to social and 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 um, natural challenges. Well, did you feel like the next day? Did you feel like you had to sort of defend your position or explain that why people were, you know, kind of making incorrect assumptions? Because I find also that defense is a, a form of uh, not quite weakness, but if you have to defend, then you're guilty, sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's it's an asymmetric war, and it's it's very unfortunate. I mean, this is something that um, my, you know I've recalibrated my response to this kind of thing since. I mean, at that time, I, I'm sure I did defend myself at some length in various contexts. And I forget what specific form that took, but yeah, it was, there was a lot that I felt I needed to do to try to clean up that mess. I mean, there was a lot more to be said at that point. I mean, now basically I've said everything I have to say about, about Islam. And, and so I'm, I'm, you know, the, the, the desire not to keep repeating myself is a thing that keeps a lid on it. But, um, uh, so I'm sort of done and I can just kind of reference the things I've already published and, and said now, but uh, then I was still kind of a work in progress there, so I, I, I just kept going. But yeah, defending yourself, the reason why it's such a thankless job is um, it conveys with it a message, no matter how you try to step outside of yourself and and you know, seize the moral high ground and just you know, reason honestly, and no matter how balanced you are while doing it, it conveys the message that you are a petty and thin-skinned person who just cares about his reputation, right? You care too much about how people perceive you, and so you're stuck, you know, trying to to make yourself, you know, untarred by whatever it was that was hurled at you. And, I mean, it's true, some people care too much about their reputation, but this rests on a couple of fallacies. I mean, one is, no, th certain the truth of specific ideas really matter independent of anyone's reputation, right? So, I mean, there's just no question that it is harmful to be confused about the differences among religions or about the power of specific ideas, to take this specific case with, with Ben Affleck. And if there were more people in the world who believed as he did at that moment. I mean, he thought that, you know, ISIS, you know, couldn't fill, the people who supported ISIS at that point couldn't fill a, a you know, like a Yankee Stadium, or I forget the, the phrase he used, but, you know, a, a ballpark. Um, I mean, it was just pure leftist delusion, right? I mean, we, you know, ISIS was, was you know, just was at its apogee there in terms of recruiting people. 
um, people were dropping out of med school in, in the UK to join ISIS, right? I mean, it's just completely insane to think that this was not a, a captivating ideology that, that really mattered. Um, so it, it matters to get that stuff straight, but it's also true that one's reputation is incredibly valuable, right? I mean, it's like, you know, yes, it, 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 people care about their reputations for good reason. If you are successfully smeared as a racist, right, if, if the first thing people see when they do a, a Google search on you until the end of time is that you know, there, there are credible charges of, race, of racism against you, that's an awful thing to happen to you. I mean, that's, you know, that's every bit as bad as having someone burn down your house, right? It's, prob it's probably worse, depending on, on what, you know, games you hope to play in your life, what sort of collaborations you, you hope to be able to pursue. I mean, it's just, it's awful, right? So responding to it, it I mean, the, the problem is responding to it is still, in many cases, totally ineffectual, right? Arguing that you're not, trying to convince people that you're not a racist is a very bad place to be starting right. in a conversation. But it does matter when someone smears you uh, and it's only natural to respond, but you just, for your own sanity, you have to, you have to pick your battles and you have to find, you have to recognize those moments when, you know, you're just, you're just in a bad faith conversation and you, you, you have to get out, right? You just, there's no reason to talk to certain people because it's, it's really not about conversation at that point. They're just, they're just smear artists. And, and, I, and I've, I've learned, you know, to, to cut my losses earlier now. And, you know, I, I, I attributed good faith to many people who I, I shouldn't have, uh, you know, over the years and, you know, have, have paid a price. So, you know, you, you live and learn. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely great advice, and segues nicely to at least four or five chapters of your book, Making Sense. Can you define moral relativism? Because this is related to your conversation with Ben Affleck. Yeah, well, so it's part of this larger postmodernist notion that that everything is is on some level a, a cultural construct, right? There's no there are no real truths that can be known or or not known. Uh, it's all sort of made up by by people and. Um, it, morals, that is. I mean, many things, but in this specific case, you know, what's good and what's bad is kind of, you know, it depends on the context, the culture, the history, and so right. on. So, so there are people who believe this about you know, more or less all truth claims, all all knowledge claims, right? So there are people who doubt that that you know the truths of molecular biology can stand free of culture, but uh, this be and that's you know it takes a lot to believe that, uh, especially with an invisible virus raging, you know, in, in every society at this moment, making people ill and we're all awaiting a vaccine and the, you know, the fabrication of that vaccine is not going to uh, matter. It's not going to matter whether the, the people doing it are, are white or black or whether they're, they're Indian or, or American. Um, but uh, people, even people who, who see the, 
the obvious errors there in, in, in general knowledge claims find it compelling that for, for moral claims, something like relativism must hold, right? There's just no place to stand on this account where you can say that anything is really right or wrong or good and evil because there's so much, so many differences of opinion here, right? So it's like we, there, most people seem to think that differences of opinion can be resolved to the advantage of one or another decisively when you're talking about physics or chemistry or biology or economics even. But when you're talking about right and wrong and good and evil, when you're talking about how to live so as to, you know, to, so as to maximize human well-being or, or whether human well-being should even be maximized, when you're talking about values, well, then all bets are off. You, you know, there's, just, there's just no ground truth to be appealed to. There's no, re, there's no reality to be in contact with. And therefore, the Taliban have just as much right to believe that they're uh, living a good life as we do. Right, and there's no place for us to stand to say, well, no, the Taliban are actually wrong about certain things with respect to morality. Right, they're they're confused, or they're they're misled, and uh, their their the society they hope to build is actually not as good as the society that we're struggling to build. Not not as good in 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 senses that we can enumerate and defend, and that we're making an objective claim about goodness, right? That, that, that's what's ruled out by relativism. And, you know, of course, it's, it's been pointed out that relativism contains its own contradiction, because implicit, you know, if not explicit, in every discussion here, the relativist is, is saying, essentially, that something follows from this view. I mean, once you admit that no one can really be right, or wrong in any deep sense about good and evil, well, then this argues that that tolerance is a kind of master value, right? You should be tolerating these diverse moral opinions, right? We should be tolerating the claims of jihadists who will threaten us with death if we write certain novels or publish certain cartoons. Um, you know, tolerance is the master value here, but of course, that is a claim that is not relativistic, right? That is a claim that purports to be universalizable, right? Right, so, so the, the contradiction being that they're making a, an absolute judgment about your judgment. Yeah, yeah. By saying that you can't judge. Right, yes, and, and, and you should be, t you're, you're wrong, you're, you're in moral error not to be accommodating of this pluralism, uh, whereas, that doesn't follow. I, it's a, you know, if relativism is true, then I should be able to say, well, okay, well, fine. Then I'm just going to go kill all the jihadists, right, and count myself right here, because there is no place to stand, right. There's no place for you to resist that uh, claim. Yeah, but but relativists never do that, right. They're always arguing for a kind of uh, diversity of views that. The people who, the people in their own society, I mean, it, it's, it is a, the truth is it, it's not even philosophy. It's a, it's a political program that has vitiated academic philosophy because, I mean, you can see it in just how, I mean, this, this is how it, it, uh, I mean, you can see it in this, in the same brains of people who will be very quick to condemn 
any white Western person who who is who is culpable for, you know, the legacy of colonialism and and white privilege and you know any anyone like me or you in in, in a Western society who would criticize, you know, uh, uh, you know, in this case, you know, the, the Taliban, right? Um, you know, I've had people condemn me for being for for thinking that I have any insight into the experience of a, a woman forced to wear a burqa, right? Who am I to say that that wearing a burqa uh, is is not optimal for human well-being, right? What 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 you know? What arrogance, you know, for me to to pass judgment on this ancient culture? <clears throat> but these same people will be utterly outraged when they hear that you know women in our society make you know eighty-one cents on the dollar. For every man, right? Like you know, forget about burkas, right? It absolute, not anything less than absolute parody, economically, is something to to really be upset about. And they don't see the discordance here, right? If you care about women, if you care about equality, well, then at a minimum, you should care that you know fully half of any society, you uh, know, in, in a place like Afghanistan, is being essentially th threatened with disfigurement or death if they if they decide to live outside of a cloth sack right so so why why do you think people can easily and and we're not just talking about idiots these are like you know, smart educated intelligent people lawyers doctors phd's well the, the the person i reference in the book the moral landscape where i argue it at great length on this topic and the encounter I referenced there was with a a woman who uh, had a PhD in biology and a JD. She was, she was like a she was a lawyer, so she was essentially a bioethicist, and she was on Obama's council uh, for uh, medical ethics. She was among twelve or thirteen people who were advising the president on, you know, the the, the coming changes and you know the ethical implications of, of changes in in genetic engineering and medicine, right? So somebody held out in our society for her moral wisdom. This is someone who uh, castigated me at a conference for judging the ethics of the Taliban, right? And I'm, and this is, you know, forgive, forgive me for the people who've heard this because I, when I was talking about the moral landscape, I, I, I use this anecdote a lot, but I, I, I was dumbfounded by her, her, um, Criticism. I said, okay. Well, let me just simplify. What, what if we found a, a an island of people who were removing the eyeballs of every third child? Um, could we then say that this this is a, a culture that w was not uh, perfectly solving the problem of of uh, uh, designing a moral society or or, or optimizing human well being? And she said, well, it would depend on why they were doing it. And I said, well, let's say they were doing it for religious reasons. Let's say they had a scripture that said every third should walk in darkness or some such nonsense. I, I like how you instantly are able to put it in very kind of biblical terms, yeah, like the yeah. walk in darkness. That, that, that takes skill. This is my wheelhouse, uh, for better or worse. Um, and she said, well, then we could never say that they were wrong. Right? She's just like, full stop. That's a perfect defeater of conversation, that somebody's resort to religious faith. This again. This is someone who's advising the president on on ethical issues. So it's just 
it's mind-boggling that people get tied in knots like this, uh, and, and reliably so. And so I mean, the larger project for me is to figure out how we can have conversations that are honest enough and searching enough and you know long enough, frankly. I mean, this is why the podcasting space is so important, uh, so that we can we can converge on on specific insights and and not lose that ground again, right? I mean, we just we get to a place where we can actually plant a flag and say, okay, we got here by ineluctable uh, argument, right? And we're and we're perpetually open to new argument and new evidence, you know. Like, I mean, that's that's why free speech it really does have to be a master norm here because it's the, it's the only mechanism we have to correct course. It's the only way that I can discover that if I believe some dangerous bullshit and don't recognize it, the only way I can discover that is to have someone who's free to tell me, right? And at the moment we make it taboo to speak honestly about certain facts, whether it's you know religion in this case or or you know racial uh, inequities in our society, or the topic of race itself, or you know wealth inequality, or um, you know climate change, or whatever it is. The moment it becomes taboo to raise specific questions or or express certain doubts, the moment you're you're just defenestrated for not mouthing the specific pieties. Um, it, we, there's a silencing effect, which is which is really dangerous, and and we're witnessing that now I mean, on on you know, specific topics, uh, several that I just mentioned, um, and it's it's totally dysfunctional. And social media obviously is a a major uh, engine of this dysfunction. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not sure how you solve it because you know. It's it's really hard on on the flip side. It's really hard to say also that there are moral absolutes because you know morality evolves. You know, a hundred years from now, morality will be different than it is now. Twenty years ago, morality was different then than it is now. But this is also related to uh, you know the issues of of consciousness, which are uh, you cover quite a bit in your podcast and in this book. That you know, to some extent a lot of things that we can verbalize and a lot of the ways that we build our society are man-made in fact, and yeah. are hard to judge from first principles. Like consciousness itself, we can't even really discuss in a way that is, uh, you know, without using consciousness to, s to describe consciousness as you point out in the book. So then it's hard to build kind of first principles about how humans should behave and so on after that. Yeah, well, so, so morality is, in my view, derivative of consciousness because consciousness is the only space in which things can matter, right? I mean, when, when, you're, when you're talking about morality, you're talking about uh, the well-being of conscious creatures. Whether, you're, whether you imagine you're talking about that or not, I mean, this is something that takes a while to argue for, and I do it at some length in, in my book, The Moral Landscape and, and elsewhere, but um, it's just either some change in the world can affect the actual or possible experience of some conscious being somewhere, or it can't. And if it can't, I would say it doesn't matter. 
right? It really like like if you're just if you say you've got something in a box that is the most important thing in the universe, but it can't affect the conscious experience, it actual or potential of any being anywhere at any time, right? Well, then that's just a total non sequitur. I mean, what you have in that box is by definition the least interesting thing in the universe, right? It can't matter. Um, so if you admit that, if you admit that, you know, when we talk about values, we talk about things that are worth wanting or worth fearing or worth avoiding. Uh, when we talk about the things you should do or shouldn't do because they, because certain outcomes matter, um, we're talking about consciousness again, at least implicitly, whether we were aware of it or not. And I view this as a kind of navigation problem. I, I've, you know, there's, there's a, functionally infinite set of possible experiences on offer here for minds that are appropriately constituted to have those experiences. So there's a range of possible human experiences and we are exploring that range, you know, however ineptly, however haphazardly. Uh, but we know that things can get better than they are now or, or tending to be. And we know they can get a lot worse, right? And we've seen, you know, each of us personally and, you know, collectively to a much greater degree, you know, vicariously to a much greater degree, we have all seen the extremes on this spectrum of experience. We know just how bad, we, we know, we know what the, you know, all of us can conjure an image of something like the worst possible life. Right now, maybe things can get much worse than that in ways we can't imagine, but we can all imagine something absolutely fucking terrible, right? Um, and we can imagine something utterly sublime, right? And that spectrum of possibility matters, if anything matters, right? If you, you there's no place to stand outside that spectrum and say, oh, you know, I've I've actually got deeper priorities than avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone, right? There isn't, there's no place to stand where you can have deeper priorities than that, right? Any priority that you could, con that, that you could conceptualize must be derivative of some set of actual or possible experiences for you or others, right? So, you know, if, if you're going to, you know, again, this is when you drill down on what could possibly be implied by a phrase like the worst possible misery for everyone, right? There's no limit to how bad that could be, right? Um, and with nothing good ever coming from it. And again, and, and so it is with, with the, the positive side of the spectrum. And so, I, you know, morality for me is born of the fact that we live in a causal framework where there are right and wrong answers with respect to how to navigate on this framework. I mean, so, so, so the, all, all the people who think there's, you know, there, there can't be any right answers to, to questions of right and wrong and good and evil because, you know, cultures disagree about these things and, you know, individuals disagree and, you know, how would we adjudicate these disagreements um, usually can be led to see that that kind of doubt breaks down when you just talk about the the causes that allow specific minds or groups of minds to experience different outcomes on this continuum 
of possible experience. So are there right and wrong answers to the question of how to move from a specific state of you know, individual or collective misery to something much, much better, right? Uh, and there are obviously right and wrong answers to that. There, there, there are answers at every level of causation, you know, from, from subatomic particles on up, right? There are answers with respect to physics and chemistry and biology and psychology and sociology and economics. At every level where we have a fact-based discussion about human minds and societies and brains and neurotransmitters at every level we're talking about facts and we are we're we're talking in terms of scientific insights and lack thereof right we're talking about our own ignorance right and things we could know that could make a difference immediately right so would it be good to find a vaccine for this novel coronavirus well yeah, on balance, I think we all have a very strong intuition that it would be very good, and we, we're we paying a price for not being able to do that every day this week, right? And how steep a price is that? Well, it's it's very difficult to quantify, right? So there's, there, there's a, there, are many, there are many things that have answers in principle, but we'll never get the answers in fact, and people get confused over that difference, right? So the fact that it, it, it can be very difficult or even impossible to figure out just, you know, which way to go to maximize human well-being in any given moment? I mean, is it is it you know is it better to? Um, this is one of the classic problems with, with with consequentialism. This this notion that that the rightness or wrongness of any action is based on the consequences. It's you never you never finally get a you never get a final tally of the consequences, right? So, uh, and this is this so there there are kind of weird wrinkles here where something that seems objectively bad in the end could be good because it could have some un unforeseen consequence that that really closed the door to much greater misery so maybe maybe in the end we'll recognize that the the covid-19 pandemic was actually good uh despite the fact that it's killed you know in in the US you know already nearly 200,000 people um and pr produced trillions of dollars in in damage um Maybe we will. Maybe there'll be a, a credible argument ten years from now that because of what because of what a wake up call this was, we have just you know bulletproofed our pandemic response now in a way that we we never would have otherwise, and now we really need it because lo and behold, there's a you know a bird flu that's got a you know sixty percent mortality rate, uh, and we just we shut it down immediately because we. You know, we had prioritized, you know, a, a pandemic response. That that's true, right? So it, it's it's true that things that seem bad may turn out to be good in the end, given certain responses and and all of that. But we can factor that in. The reality is, there's there's a lawful way to move in a direction worth going. You know, i.e., away from the worst possible misery for everyone and towards something much better. Now, how much better? That Again, that's, I think, the horizon of possible states of, of human well-being is is genuinely, you know, wide open and very far away, right? Like, we can't, we, we can't even dimly make out how good human life could be. I mean, how good will human life be in a million years if we solve all of our most pressing problems 
right? It's just unimaginable. But but so does this beg the question of we can't judge anything as moral? Well, no, we can because again, we we just need. It's like you can even now you can see the wisdom of taking your hand off of a hot stove, right? Uh, right, like, but that's that's like that's science though, right? So it seems like, and this is where a lot of your discussion of consciousness uh, in the book even has sort of a line where, like, take two elements, you know, take two atoms and put them together. Uh, it would be very bad if a chemical reaction didn't result in the normal rules of physics and the universe applying. Like, if if the rules of of the universe that we've outlined with science don't apply in one case, that could mean something horrifically bad or, or it, it just never will happen. Whereas with consciousness, there is this opportunity that something inside of us, as you say, there's a navigation problem. Something inside of us makes us take the next step towards a more rational behavior, i.e. Uh, a better society, for instance, or, or better outcomes for ourselves. So if though that's unpredictable, so that, so that seems like the line between not consciousness, i.e., you know, just pure scientific outcome and, okay, we have some choice. There's some universe of possibility. And since we can't say when that possibility is ended, where we could judge the outcome of it, what does that say about morality and consciousness? Well, we just, we make incremental gains on more or less every front without ever arriving at a final resting point where we know we have the the right answer for all time, right? I mean, it's a little bit analogous to, to engineering and, you know, doing something as simple as building a house, right? So, you you know, if you're building a house today in the, in the year 2020, you're doing it having benefited from all of the mistakes that home builders have made for, you know, really for thousands of years. But, you know, most recently, I mean, in a developed society, you'll, you'll be benefiting from, you know, engineering standards and, you know, legal requirements to meet them in a city like New York or, or Los Angeles, right? So it's, it's just, we will have discovered ways to keep buildings from falling down uh, that are improvements over the old ways that we we didn't understand, you know, were mistaken for various reasons, or they're responsive to new conditions that we now understand. I mean, when, when you don't know about an, uh, what an earthquake is, um, you know, you, you 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 don't engineer against it, and now uh, discovering earthquakes and how and and something of their periodicity, um, we we build we factor that in. And, and this is why knowledge matters. It always matters, right? So if you really believe in God who can be propitiated by prayer, you might think that that's the way to, to engineer buildings. And that, and that used to be the case. I mean, it used to be the case the world over, right? In, in, in literally dozens, uh, if not hundreds of cultures, that people thought that the best way to keep a building from falling down, I mean, literally to keep a building from falling in on itself was to perform a human sacrifice, right? And, and, and we have found you know, the, the remains of bodies buried in the foundations of buildings. And it's now understood that they were, they were sacri- that we had bodies buried in the post holes of buildings as a propitiation 
to gods who would otherwise knock these buildings down, right? That's what engineers do in the absence of any understanding of physics. Um, uh, you know, they sacrifice somebody's child. Uh, and on some level, we're still doing stupid things like that. Uh, we're just getting much smarter, you know, over the centuries. And we're, we're closing the door to specific errors and, and hopefully not making those errors again. But it, it is iterative. And it's, again, it's always just reasoning to the, 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 be the best explanation. It's never having a final set of truths in hand, but it's it's having something like a, a a good enough set so as to keep reorienting, right? I mean, it's just like we know enough now to know that when it comes time to figure out how to build the next skyscraper, you know, the one that's going to be you know, 500 feet taller than anything that exists now, you know, human sacrifice is no longer on the table to be considered as a possible remedy for, for our, you know, our engineering problems. Um, and so it is with many other dumb ideas, right? We, we, we close the door to them and this is no less true on moral questions than it is on engineering questions. It's just people are slower to admit it, right? So that the Taliban really are wrong to want what they think they want, right? They really are confused. If you're a Taliban father who thinks that you'd rather have your daughter be illiterate and living in a bag and then just married off for a dowry, right? If you think that if she gets raped, the appropriate response emotionally is to feel overcome with shame, right, and, and anger and, rather than compassion, and to want to kill her out of shame, right? And so that honor killing becomes the response to your own daughter, who you purport to love, being victimized, right? Um, that is just a... a, a a complex of moral confusion, and and it, it's it's a piece of of code. It's 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 legacy code from you know our our distant ancestors. I mean, in this case, you know, I don't know what the first honor culture was, but but it, it is clearly an operating system that has been improved in other cultures, right? We've 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 gotten a firmware update, right? That these guys haven't gotten, um, and. Uh, it's better code, right? It's more compassionate code. It's, it's leading onward in a way that that even members of the Taliban want, but they just don't see it, right? Like they, they're. I don't think members of the Talib, Taliban are especially fond of of uh, infant mortality and maternal mortality, right? I mean, infant mortality and maternal mortality in Afghanistan at one point was the highest in the world. Uh, you know, when, when the Taliban w w was really ruling things there, and um, you know, I, let's just you know stipulate that that even Mullah Omar is not a fan of seeing women and children die, you know, merely by struggling to be to be born. Um, so, but there's a direct connection between that and having the kind of society. That keeps girls illiterate and living in bags, right? I mean, just you can only succeed so much as a material society and as as an intellectual society, uh, keeping half your population immiserated and um, and enslaved, right? And then spending the rest of your time learning to to recite um, uh, from a a book of 
of ancient uh, pseudo-knowledge, uh, you know, in this case, the Quran, right? I mean, it's like this, the whole project is so deranged given the real opportunities for human well-being that it is true that we, we can stand in relation to it exactly as critically as we can stand in relation to it with respect to morality in the same way as we can with any other domain of knowledge. So, yes, the Taliban are not experts on physics or medicine or any other domain of real knowledge, and they're also not experts on morality, right? And, the, and the, when they pretend to be experts on morality, when they claim that it is their heartfelt concern that their daughters not be taught to read, right? And they're going to throw battery acid in their faces if they if they try to go to school, uh, and they're going to shoot someone like uh, Malala Yousafzai, right, in the head, hoping to kill her for going to school. Uh, and they're going to claim that they're that, that the that the fatwa stands even after she wins the Nobel Prize, right? We can condemn this every bit as much as if somebody were were promising to you know design new a new. Uh, system of rockets or, you know, satellites based on Taliban uh, conceptions of, of physics. And so, and so I, I agree. And of course, I think anybody with, with common sense would agree. But then how do you overcome the argument that what makes our society now an expert over that society, which is kind of the argument the, the relativists make? Like, how do we respond to that potential contradiction on our side? Well, just just look at the look at the standards by which we would point out our own moral errors, right? So that, that these people, the people who would pause before judging the Taliban, are precisely the people who are most concerned about racism in our society, inequality, mm. Me Too. I mean, these these people are all hashtags all the time, right? It's all Me Too and Black Lives Matter for people who would would castigate me for judging the Taliban, right? It, it is a performative contradiction. I see. So it's almost like the distance in in the contradiction is what tells you there might be something wrong in this style of thinking, as opposed to a, con a consistency. Precisely the same standard you would use to, be, to grow really animated over, you know, me too, right? And, and all of the... the um, the specific incidents in which women have been abused or their lives have been made harder uh, in our society, right? So if, you, if you're concerned about rape and sexual violence and sexual harassment and just off-color jokes and w women made to feel uh, disadvantaged in the boardroom, right? If, if that's really what gets you up in the morning with your with your moral outrage, and I'm not, I'm not saying anyone's wrong to be outraged by that. I mean, I have two daughters... And you know their well-being is 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 uh, you know paramount in my mind. Um, I want them to. I want the, I want all their dreams realized, right? So I'm you know I'm I'm down with with uh, um, feminism uh, in in all its sane forms. You know while acknowledging that there are are in, insane forms of it out there, especially on Twitter at the moment. Um, but. If you're concerned that women have absolute political equality in the United States, well, then that same moral concern is what should get you to recognize how profoundly unlucky one is to be born a girl in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, right? That is a that is a a, a absolutely dismal 
outcome for somebody. Now, it, it's interesting because this is related to your chapter on on tyranny. And I always like, so John Rawls is this mm-hmm. political philosopher describing what, let's say, an ideal democracy should look like. And it includes people who are both reasonable and rational. Rational meaning that they want what's best for themselves. And that could also mean what's best for society. Because if society is good, then I'm doing good. And reasonable means, hey, other people are going to have different opinions and we need to all come together and address those opinions. And sometimes I'll win and sometimes I won't when a consensus is reached. And But there's, but there's limits to it. And I think you're defining what those limits are that basically things, a, a system of any one person's rational belief should remain consistent. Like it can't be, something can't be good for me, but that same thing not appropriate for you. Yeah, so so reasons, you know, real reasons, reasons that others should take seriously need to be generalizable, right? I mean, it needs to, it can't be true just because you're you and I'm me, right? It has to, it has to be true in some more global sense. I mean, it's not to say that people can't make specific claims about their own experience, but if they're if they're just local to their own experience, well, then they they're not something that that others can be can be argued into uh, really acting on, right? So, I mean, like a, a question about what is really fair or just that can't just apply to a specific individual. That has to be that 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 refers to some framework in which we all need to act and we all need to see the rightness of it, right? And we will see the rightness of it provided you're actually making an argument based on something that that is universalizable. So so how does this, and again, I'm referring to, I'm going back and forth to different chapters in your book, but compare that with discussions on racism where, you know, in these conversations range from what is racism to what is systemic racism to racism doesn't really exist. It's classism. Like where, where do you settle on that in, in all mm-hmm. of your conversations on this? Right. So, so this is one of those topics that is essentially like plutonium, right? I mean, like the, it's very hard to handle it without getting damaged reputationally, especially if you're a white guy making the argument that, that I'm about to make, right? So that's just something to know up front and, and then you can decide just how how um, vocal you want to be with your views, right? But this is the, so the what I'm about to say now is the kind of thing that um, uh, dishonest people uh, or confused people will respond to with charges of, of racism, right? And you know, I've really and really the only remedy for this in the current environment is to make yourself uncancelable, right? So it's it's like you know, I've taken as as I think you know great pains to create a platform where I can just say what I want, right? And and it's because I think it's true and useful and, you know, we need to, we need to talk about these real problems and we need to do it honestly. Um, and, you know, no one can fire me, right? So I can say, and, but it takes some effort to do that and not, and, you know, I recognize not everybody can. And it's a problem that the, that what I'm about to say is the sort of thing that, can get someone fired if they're an academic, even one with tenure, frankly, uh, or you know, certainly if you're a journalist, you can get fired. So, you know, the f- the first thing to concede up front is that racism is a real problem 
and has been, I mean, let's just speak locally in the, in the U.S., right? You know, racism and uh, certainly slavery, which was its worst instance, is really the, you know, the original sin of our society, right? So I, I, I can grant all of that and go on at great length acknowledging just how bad racism has been and how we are right to uh, go to war with it and overcome it and uh, and there's and there's more work to do on that front, which is to say there are people who are actual racists in our society. They're white supremacists and, you know, um, imbeciles who are, you know, even now, uh, as I'm speaking these sentences, probably getting swastikas tattooed on their bodies. They're people with, it, with those kinds of convictions yet living among us. Uh, but they, are, they truly are a far fringe, right? It's not, this is a, you have to work very hard to find real racists, people who will say, yeah, I, I don't, I want, I want to live in a, in a all white society, or, um, you know, I, I want to keep people of certain skin color or, or ethnic backgrounds out of the society because they're inferior, um, you know, the, just, you know, real members of the Ku Klux Klan or people sympathetic with those ideas. Um, these are, used to be that there were millions of such people in our society and they, they were senators and governors and, and there, was a, there was a kind of ascendancy uh, to real ideological racism, which is not the case now and hasn't been for quite some time. Um, but there's, there are certain there are legacies of the period of slavery and Jim Crow, you know, Reconstruction and Jim Crow, which, you know, we're still struggling to, to uh, uh, fully retire, right? So there's just, there is a, there are after effects. And speaking honestly about these after effects is really important. It's really important that we understand why, uh, you know, the, the black community in particular has some obvious disadvantages you know, even in the year 2020 in our society, a much higher crime rate in particular and uh, much less wealth, right? I mean, there's just, just obvious, there's obvious wealth inequality that breaks along racial lines in our society. So, I mean, class is its own variable here, but class also correlates with, with race in our society and, you know, to the disadvantage of, of the black community especially. It's important that we understand all of this in a good faith way and, and figure out what to do about it, right? And what the default situation here now is that most people on the left, you know, more or less anywhere left of center, assume that all of the inequality that we see in our society or along, along racial lines is born of racism. Right, so when you ask the question, why aren't there more black, you know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies or black cardiologists? Uh, why is there, you know, why do do black families on average have one tenth the accumulated wealth of white families? Uh, the only acceptable answer to that is white racism, or so-called systemic racism or institutional racism, which again is maintained by either white racists or white people who 
don't know they're racist or are are so you know callous and and uninterested in solving these problems that they're ignoring uh, some some obvious you know glaring errors with respect to you know housing policy or or anything else that that maintains this these disadvantages. Um, now some of the, at the margins some of that is true, right? I mean I think there are there there are policies that uh, that I'm sure exist and and some will discover that reliably disadvantage. Uh, Black people over white people, um, and you know, certainly poor people over rich people. Uh, and again, that cuts mostly. Uh, you know, that's that is um, that has a racial component uh, for whatever reason. Now, um, and you know, I mean, this is true in the criminal justice system. When you look at the kinds of you know prison sentences people serve, and for what crimes, um, but it is it is an open question. Uh, a genuinely open question, how much of today's inequality in the year 2020 is born of any form of racism and how much of it is just, has other causes, right? And the, the bias on the left is to set the racism detector so at such a sensitive setting that they seem to find racists everywhere. Right, and so you have books like White Fragility that are basically arguing that all white people are are racist, and it's it's a um, something for which there is no real remedy. It's just like you're like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You you just need to you just need to own it, and it needs to become the central principle of your life uh, that you overcome this problem. That you know, if, and if you can't find it in yourself, that's somehow a double symptom of it. You're in, you're in so much denial. Of your racism, that that you you know you can't even admit it. Um, it's a uh, and this is a cult, right? This this anti-racist movement in the U.S. now is a genuine moral panic that has all of the uh, signs of being a cult. Uh, there's blasphemy, there's taboos, there's there's you know scapegoating uh, and you know essentially human sacrifices. Uh, uh, hate, uh, hate for near believers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, detecting the slightest demurral in someone who otherwise agrees with you about everything is, um, you know, requires a a um, an auto de fe. I mean, like literally, just you know, heretics are being uh, hunted. Uh, you know, especially in social media. And again, this is not. Uh, this sounds exaggerated, but lives are being destroyed. Careers are being destroyed over this. Um, and it's, it's a, it is a true hysteria, right? You're not dealing with rational people when you're talking about this topic for the most part. We, we see celebrities, uh, you know, in response to the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd killing, we see celebrities, you know, basically posting hostage videos on Twitter talking about, you know, tearfully talking about their, their own racism and culpability, right? I mean, some of the least racist people and least racist parts of culture ever to form in any society, right, are now rending themselves over their their original sin. It, it's it's completely maddening. I mean, this is happening in the scientific community. We've got journals like Nature and Science publishing editorials about having to root out their own racist bias. Uh, you know, the, it's like the Oscars. Um, 
is is you know the the the, the Academy of Motion Pictures is is focused on its racism. Every private school and every well-intentioned part of affluent America is is soul-searching about its racism. These are some of the least racist cultures that have ever existed on Earth, right? Objectively, right? This is not, again, I'm not saying that racism isn't still a problem in our society and we should we should genuinely find it and genuinely resist it and and... Uh, that's all true, but that you are talking about the, you're, you're talking about a society that has made immense progress since 1964, um, and to to we have we now have many people many people who are disproportionately white and well off. Right, this is not what you know. This is not the center of of narrative gravity of the black community now, but it's it's the center of gravity among woke white people. I mean, the, the, the irony is, is that wokeness is itself a sign of white privilege, largely now. Um, overeducated white people on the left are the most woke people in our society. They're the most animated about, about the problem of, of racism now. And um, they're, they're positively aflame with it. And it's... Um, it's totally dysfunctional. It is engineer. It is it is engineering its own backlash. I mean, the only response right of center to this in the end will be white identity politics. And if Trump wins in November, I mean, he could be too far gone in his ineptitude around COVID to to eke out a victory. But if he does win in November, it will be a hundred percent because of this hysteria on the left, specifically over the, the variable of race now. Um, and it's, a, it's a, just a, an own goal of, of just epic proportions, completely unnecessary. We can fight racism uh, without lying to ourselves about just how, how big a problem it is. You know, I want to um, reel back to, you know, in the in the very first part of the book, it, a lot of it is about consciousness and your interest in it and how that interest evolved. I know back when you were initially an undergrad, you dropped out of school uh, and then went on, of course, to finish and then get a, a PhD. What, what, in, you know, I know I'm, I'm switching topics, mm -hmm. but I really am fascinated by this story. What inspired you initially to, to drop out? And then this leads, of course, into your interest in in consciousness. Yeah. Well, I mean, first it was there. There were really two variables. One was I I knew I wanted to be a writer, but at that point I th I thought I wanted to write novels. So, and you know, if you're if you're writing fiction, it doesn't really matter if you go to grad school or or even finish school as long as you're writing, you know, the great fiction. So I thought at the time, well, then I should just get busy doing that. I, I know what my path in life is going to be. Is I'm going to be a writer, and uh, I just don't don't need more school. So that was part of it from the career side. That was that was the thing that that made me not see a real disadvantage in dropping out. And I knew I could go back too. So I mean, that was the other things that I was going to Stanford, which I, I may be alone among 
decent schools that it just had a policy that you really can never drop out. You can, you can only what they call stop out. Uh, and you can just show back up, you know, 20 years later if you want and re-enroll. You don't have to stay in good standing with them in any way. I think that was part of it. But also, uh, I, I had gotten very interested in meditation and, you know, philosophy in general, but Eastern philosophy in particular. I'm just, I, I had a kind of quasi-spiritual awakening uh, based on my, my first experience with MDMA and then... Uh, you know, linking that up with with having read a few books and and deciding that meditation was worth looking into, and then I started sitting meditation retreats, and I, I went to India and Nepal and studied with various teachers, and that took on its own momentum in my twenties, and um, that's really what my twenties were about. It was it was you know I was writing, but um, mostly studying meditation and and giving myself a an esoteric education and and reading, you know, philosophy at that point. And then, but then when I when I started writing nonfiction and real, uh, I very soon thereafter realized that, okay, now this stuff is is no, no no matter what its quality is, unlike fiction, this is going to be unpublishable because people are their first question is going to be, how do you know any of this stuff, right? I mean, where'd you go to school and what did you study? And having been an English major uh, and then dropping out was not going to be good enough. So, so then I went back uh, and finished my degree in philosophy and then did a, a PhD in neuroscience, um, all, all the while knowing that what I really wanted to do was write and speak and think about the mind. And, and do you think this credentialism is something that we're stuck with? Or do you think we're also evolving beyond that, like the idea that you can't do X without some sort of certification. Uh, I don't think we're stuck with it. I think you have to be really smart and and talented to not connect any of those dots and still succeed. I mean, there there are people who you know have become celebrated you know scientists without having a, a PhD in science. Um, you know, there have been physicists who never, never got uh, graduate degrees in physics. Um, there, there are obviously, you know, people who have made great contributions to computer science without formally being computer scientists or even, even finishing college. I think, I think Jaron Lanier is, is one of those people. Um, he's been on my podcast. Uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky is, who's really a brilliant guy who, who, um, has made more contributions to to the ethics of AI. He never went to high school, I think, or he certainly didn't finish high school. Um, but you, you have to be damn smart for nobody to care about any of your credentials. And even you know, even there, in, in certain cases, you do show some of the the scars of being self taught. I would argue. Um, and I mean, there, there are advantages to being self-taught because you sort of you never learn to to put on certain blinders. But there there are some disadvantages. I mean, you, you do reinvent the wheel or or give it corners on occasion because you just haven't been you ha you haven't had to jump through all the hoops that you have to jump through to, to get you know through the machinery of of academia in 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 the, the normal sequence and. 
you know, I think, you know, frankly, I think I show some of the the scars of being self-taught, at least on certain topics. Um, and again, it's it's a, an advantage and a disadvantage, and it's, it's hard to know how to how to you know net it out in the end. But I think it is just it is true that you can learn so much now on your own. And one's tempted to say you can learn everything, you know, almost on your own now. So you know, if you're disciplined enough, uh, and you're you're in a field where you can demonstrate competence in a way that is unfakeable, um, then I, I I do think the path is open to to many people to to just bypass you know, the the usual curriculum altogether. And um, because look at your experience, like you you basically um, had this awakening experience triggered by, you know, possibly MDMA, and then you go no, no, to quite, India, quite, quite, Nepal. Quite certainly MDMA. Quite yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, and you go to India and Nepal, and you you study with, you know, people who are essentially the, the equivalent of super experts on, on meditation and consciousness and you know, spirituality perhaps. And that alone though, well, you you still had to um, kind of come back to learn the intellectual language around it before you felt comfortable writing about it. Uh, even though, you know, you say there might be scars from from your your experiences of self-teaching, but maybe those scars are, are positive. Yeah, I mean, the, the positive side... And again, you you can get this even if you you go through all the usual channels. I, I just think it's, it's this could be more temperamental than than actually a, a the result of the path one takes. But uh, I think being an autodidact certainly helps on, on certain at least in certain areas. You 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 can learn to disregard or or never even notice the boundaries between the purported boundaries between disciplines, right? Because the, the truth is the boundaries between intellectual areas, you know, topics, the boundary between neuroscience and psychology uh, or neuroscience and psychology and the philosophy of mind or those three things and, you know, computer science. Th these boundaries are... Um, are fungible or or non-existent, right? They're porous at a minimum at every point, and so there's no telling when an insight in, into one area will, will be relevant in another. And for anyone who's really confined by traditional boundaries in a discipline, they're 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 being starved of certain. Uh, information right they're now now to some degree observing those boundaries is is born of of just the you know the limits in any in any one person's you know time or attention right i mean it's, it's just born of specialization if you, if you want to go really deep in one area if you want to get really good if you want to become a a world expert on a certain kind of you know neurotransmitter well then you're going to spend a lot of time focused on that topic to the exclusion of everything else, and and that's just what it is to specialize. But uh, f viewed from a, another side, 
the boundaries between specific disciplines really are just the result of university architecture and university budgets, and they, ha- they say nothing about the nature of reality. Uh, and you should ignore them, right? And you should, be, you should be free as a neuroscientist or as a philosopher or as an economist to, to become interested enough in, in adjacent or even distant disciplines so as to make a contribution there, right? I mean, that, oh, that's possible, right? And, um, and you should also just, there's, a, there's room to be a, a, an intelligent generalist who's just, who's, you know, if not a true polymath, someone who's, who's interested in so many things that you're just bouncing all over the place, finding connections. I mean, all of that is incredibly useful. And, and so that's, that's the mode I I tend to be in. And it's the mode one can readily be in if one hasn't been, um, you know, doesn't have the sunk cost of having, you know, spent 20 years being increasingly narrow in one special specialization, such that when it comes time to think or say anything of substance about another domain, one's first impulse is to to assume that you 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 really can't or shouldn't, right? Like mm-hmm. you, know, you, you know, I'm the world expert on on uh, you know serotonin and specific receptor sites, uh, uh, and I wouldn't want, you know, an economist telling me about, about that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to presume to know much of anything about the, the economy. Um, that, that kind of scientific humility is, is, is very valuable in certain cases, but it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of, um, Know, intellectual anorexia in other cases, and it's it's uh, w- what we need more and more are smart people who can function by um, uh, very specific norms of intellectual honesty, uh, who can get up to speed on, on many different fronts and 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 fertilize you know various disciplines with by making adjacent or even distant connections between them because it's. It's uh, it's just it's not an accident that you often see people come in from, you see a physicist come into biology and and make, you know, breakthrough contributions, um, or vice versa, and um, it's it's uh, so it's it's worth disregarding the, those boundaries and and people who have more of an a a self taught uh, path do that readily because they're just you know it, they were never taught to do otherwise. And when you went back to school and learned, you know, and you got your, your PhD and you have this much more rigorous study of uh, the theories behind consciousness, do you think that that added to your knowledge um, compared with what you learned in, from meditation and, you know, what you learned in India and Nepal and so on? Oh, yeah. It was a very different kind of language game to be playing. And it wasn't so relevant to consciousness per se because the truth is we still don't know much of anything about consciousness in neuroscience but we know a lot about the mind you know and a lot about its dependency on the brain and a lot about the brain in general and and um uh, just it, it's a uh, uh 
that was the domain of facts I wanted to know, to know something about so as to constrain the conversation about the mind. I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're talking about the human mind and you don't know anything about the brain, uh, you're just, at some level, you're not actually talking about the mind anymore, right? You're, you're fantasizing about it, right? If you're going to be a Freudian, uh, you know, in principle, uh, or a Jungian, or, or any other, um, devoted to any other school of mind talk, uh, and never make contact with what we're learning about the brain, well, then you, you've, you've, you've tied both hands behind your back intellectually. Well, I, and I guess, I guess a big question is, you know, in terms of the relationship between neuroscience and experiences you might get through meditation is how much of it is, and I'm, I'm asking this with not having knowledge in it, um, how much of it is neurochemical versus something that some higher consciousness or some deeper consciousness that one touches through, through meditation? Well, I mean, this is so this is something I get into mostly in in my book, Waking Up, and and you know, in a deeper and and more ongoing way in in my app by that same title. Um, I, I think our, you know, it, it's not that discussion about the brain will ever fully supersede our discussion about the mind. It's not like we will one day cease to talk about things like thoughts and feelings or or uh, states of mind like love and compassion uh, and only talk about neurotransmitters uh, and their reuptake right I mean it's like these are two different language games that each have their sphere of application but it just is true that that we know more and more about the fact that the our experience, the basis, the material basis for our experience is uh, what is happening in our heads. You know, it's, it's, it, the, the mind is what the brain is doing. Now, the, the truth is consciousness is, is its own kind of outlier topic that is distinct. I mean, we, we really, we don't know how consciousness arises in, in physical systems. Um, we, and, you know, you're, you're certainly, you'll, you'll never embarrass yourself at a cocktail party among neuroscientists or any other scientists if you suppose that consciousness arises at some level of information processing in a, in a complex system like the brain. I mean, that is the, that is the, um, the most well-subscribed view in, in science at this point, which is to say that most, most scientists are physicalists. And they believe that that everything, including consciousness, is at su at bottom a physical process. But what that actually means really is is still hard to specify. And um, whether that ever will admit of a proper reduction of consciousness to the physics of things is still an open question. I mean, I, I think it's. Um, you know, it, it, consciousness it seems hard. I mean, this is why it's called the hard problem of consciousness. And this is, a, this is a, at least two chapters on this topic in the book. Consciousness is not like another phenomenon where the understanding its its micro constituents provides a genuine explanation. 
right? Like if, you know, if, if I'm going to talk about the, something like the fluidity of water or the, the brittleness of glass, right? Or, or the way, you know, some uh, heat appears at, at a, at a, the macroscopic level of, you know, a human hand to talk about what molecules and atoms are doing actually does explain the 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 micro the macro level phenomenon the micro the micro phenomenon explain the macro phenomenon in a way which are which conserves our intuitions um, and so it is with a phenomenon as complex as life right when you when you actually get into into the details of what differentiates a, a living system from a dead one uh, our intuitions begin to get cashed out, which is to say that the explanations do not look like miracles. They're they're very complex, right? I mean, to talk about you know the the molecular biology that gives us uh, you know wound repair or you know in, inheritance, you know just just the reproduction of of species, right? DNA and and protein synthesis and and you know, all of the mechanics here are, are complex, but at no point do you say, oh, that's just a miracle, right? That requires a miracle. That's fundamentally uh, a, a, it's a transition that, that cannot be cashed out intuitively, right? That it makes no sense where it's just, it's like it's getting, a rabbit is being pulled out of the hat. You know, you're getting something out of truly nothing, um, that doesn't happen when you're trying to explain life. It seems to happen when you're trying to explain consciousness in terms of states that are unconscious in and of themselves, which is to say that, you know, let's just say that it's true that a single neuron is unconscious. There's nothing that is like to be said neuron. But if you wire it together with, you know, a specific number of other neurons in a certain configuration well then the lights come on right then then there's something that it's like to be that system it has a point of view it has a felt point of view it's not that it merely can process information but it it feels like something to process that information it's it's a it, it's it has a qualitative character to its experience not that it's just it's not just that it's functionally integrated with other streams of causes in the world, but it's like something to be functionally integrated in precisely that way. That's the, the mystery of consciousness. When you actually look at what's being claimed there, I would claim that it is still a miracle. It is. It still sounds like a miracle. It, it's still something that is a brute fact that isn't being successfully understood. It's just being stated. It's, it's like... I mean, the only analogy in science is the notion that that everything, you know, the universe, its laws, everything came out of nothing, right? Like first there was nothing, and then there was there was you know the Big Bang or or some initiating event which came out of nothing, right? Now that that may in fact be true, but to state it as such isn't to understand it that isn't actually an explanation that's it's simply a brute fact which we we need to merely accept it's not to say it's not true it's just it's it's not parsable it's not it's it's not explanatory we don't understand it 
If anything sounds like a miracle, that does. And this transition from nothing that it's like to be a physical system subjectively, that is, you know, unconsciousness to consciousness, I, you know, it seems to me to be to be the subjective equivalent of that. It, it does seem like the restatement of a of a miracle. Yeah, it's interesting the analogy because, you know, in terms of the beginning of the universe, whether it's the Big Bang or or something else, or we're a simulation, that's one of those cases where we don't know the answer, but most likely there is an answer. Whereas there might not be an answer to the relationship between consciousness and reality other than to say it's it's a miracle well well there, no there could be an answer i'm just it's just it seems like it's very difficult to imagine i mean th thus far in my view it has been impossible to imagine what the answer could be such that it would be understandable right so the, normally when there's a blank space on the map of our understanding we can imagine what could be in that space so as to complete the puzzle in a way that would be intelligible to us. I mean, like, you know, the universe being a simulation is is just sort of that sort of thing, right? I mean, it's, it's not to say that it's the most rational thing to believe, but we, we could imagine what could be true such that that would be the case and would be explanatory, right? And and so it is with with you know all manner of of spooky thing. I mean, like let's just say that it's true that um, we have immortal souls that that are merely integrated with our physical bodies, and then after death they go off to to paradise or to hell, depending on what was believed about the you know the origin of a, a specific book. Uh, I mean, it's it's a preposterous. Uh, set of ideas. There's no evidence for it. And the fact that half of humanity at least believes something like that um, uh, is, no, is no evidence in support of it. But it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that you could sort of fit into the space provided, right? You could say, okay, well, let's just talk about this. I mean, there's, there's some problems at the, at the margins. Like, how does this soul that is immaterial which is to say it's immortal, it can you know, float free of the brain at death. Well, how does it influence human thought and behavior during life? I mean, if, it, if it's immaterial, just what, how is it having this, you know, billiard, this billiard ball effect on the, on the clockwork of things? You know, is it, how is it pushing around neurotransmitters? I mean, they're, they're clearly having their effect um, you know, at the synapse. You know, we, we can't deny that because we know too much about how brains work at this point. So, what, where's where's the room for the soul to to do its work? Well, there there could be some kind of bridging principle. We are we we can sort of drill down on on what we would imagine there. Now, again, I, I don't believe anything like this. This is these ideas are in in have a have a marginal uh, uh, and scarcely existent stature in science at this point, and for good reason. Um, but uh, again, it's not the kind of thing that is impossible to to imagine. You know, what, what, the shape of the thing that would need to be true for it to be true. But when you're talking about consciousness emerging from unconscious complexity, right? So it's just a fact that that you know, there's nothing that it's like to be a human brain in one state, but you put it in a slightly different state. 
you know, that the single neuron that is the difference that makes the difference, well, then all of a sudden it is it has a rich you know, per, perspectival experience of the sort that you're having right now. Again, that may be true. It's like that that we could you know, find the answer at the back of the book of nature, which just states the fact that you could, you know neurons have to be firing at precisely forty one hertz, you know, within a, a window of five hundred milliseconds. Uh, and if you if you get to you know thirty nine hertz, uh, you know, at six hundred milliseconds, well, the lights go out, right? But again, that is this that is every bit as uh, bizarre and seemingly miraculous as making any other kind of claim about a complex system like what if it's just true that if you have a rainstorm uh that has you know a certain wind velocity well then that whole system of clouds uh becomes conscious right that would be insane if that were true i mean it's just it, that would be the statement of a miracle um and it, it, we're, we're in that territory when we're trying to posit uh, answers to the hard problem of consciousness. There's, any answer we posit isn't explanatory. It just seems like a brute fact, which uh, we would have to accept. Yeah, and I think, look, these are the types of issues, whether it's consciousness or or figuring out morality or figuring out, uh, you know, as you title it, the road to tyranny or dealing with, you know, talking about cognitive biases with Daniel Kahneman, this this type of thinking is what makes the book making sense so special. And I feel like we've only we've only hit the tip of the iceberg of the book, and the book itself hits the tip of the iceberg of you know your hundreds of interviews on the Making Sense podcast, which I'm an avid listener to. And so you know, once again, uh, Sam Harris, author of Making Sense, I I'm so happy you you made the time to come on the podcast to talk about the book. I have one remaining question, which is, and, and by the way, thank you for the advice early on in the podcast. And the one remaining question is, it's I feel so calm when I talk to you. You're like mm -hmm. such a calming voice. Do you ever get upset at things? I can't imagine you being like angry and yelling at somebody. Uh, yeah, no, I I definitely get upset. I, I just you know, for me, the 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 real benefits of meditation in this area is is you know thus far is not that it has you know perfectly barred the door to any specific negative emotion. It's just that the half life of these emotions is is greatly reduced. I mean, I can more or less get off the ride any moment I want. So if I'm suddenly provoked to anger by something, you know, I see. You know, I'm you know I'm sure if I saw Jerry Seinfeld uh, attacking me in the New York Times, I'd I'd have a a a big reaction. But then very very quickly, my my mind would go into the mode of thinking, okay, how useful is this? Right? Like like what what you know is there something to do on the basis of this reaction? And um, is it best done? under the shadow of this emotion, right? Like if you, if you want to be effective, if you want to, okay, so let's say, let's say I do need to write a response, right? Well, then, then this, this anger signal or this, this, you know, uh, despair signal or whatever the, 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 the negative emotion is, it's a, it's a salience signal, right? It's like, okay, this is worth paying attention to. You know, you just had 
a famous person say something bad about you, um, what what should you do next? Well, you know, uh, you can use it as energy, right? But very likely, what you do next is not best done in a state of real anger, right? You know, it's like rage is is almost never helpful. Uh, apart from just this, this, uh, this again, this initial orienting response of paying attention to the problem, it's good to be able to let go of negative emotion very quickly. And that, and again, that's what mindfulness allows you to do, right? You just because if you just if you get out of your thoughts about why you feel this way and have every right to feel this way and all the bad things that have just happened or will happen, and if you if you notice thoughts as thoughts, as a, as mere appearances in consciousness, and you notice the the physiology of the emotion that is that has been kindled by your your brooding for minutes about what just happened, um, you become interested in, in these appearances. Again, there's just there's just there's just uh, language in the mind and imagery in the mind and and physiological changes in your in your body that have no intrinsic meaning, right? I mean, this feeling of anger, the moment you recognize the physiology of it, it, it no longer has psychological content, right? The thoughts are just images and language in the mind, and the the anger is just this, you know, warmth in your chest and tightness in your face, and it's just pure sensation. And the moment you become interested and inquisitive and accepting of it and just just nakedly aware of it, you know, i.e. mindful of it, it begins to dissipate very, very quickly. Right? I mean, the half-life of any emotion like anger is on the order of seconds. Now, it's not even minutes, right? So it's just, it's impossible to stay angry unless you get lost in thought again about all the reasons why you should be angry. And 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 the more you train your mind to notice that that process, the more you're free to just relax, even when there's something left to do, I mean, even when you then have to block out, you know, the rest of your day just to write a, you know, a response to the the article that defamed you or whatever it was, um, it's uh, you can then you can find balance more and more quickly, and that that really is the, you know, the kind of superpower you get when you when you practice enough meditation. It's not a matter of never feeling angry ever again or fearful ever again. Or sad ever again. I mean that you know, perhaps that you know, perhaps there's some state to be realized where that is in fact possible. But you know, I, I certainly haven't gotten there myself, and uh, I'm not even sure it makes sense to want that again. I I think you do want you want you want these these signals of salience, right? I mean, fear is very useful, anger is very useful in in specific contexts. But you just don't want to stay there for very long, and and that's uh, I mean, mindfulness gives you that ability to just break the spell. That's a really good point about reducing the half life of an emotion, kind of by by taking a step back and and analyzing it and observing it as as separate from you. And is this is this useful for me in the context of of moving forward? I think that's uh, that's a that's a really great insight about meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, you know, go, it goes deeper than that, but in terms of like the, the, the near term ga- gains of the practice, you know, that, that can come very early I mean, people can very quickly get the ability to just 
pull the brakes or or uh, you know step off the ride you know, even for just moment even for moments at a time so you, you can just be punctuating this this normal reaction with these moments of of real calm and then you you get sucked sucked back in, in again but again you you can become more and more sensitive to the mechanics of that and less taken in by them and it's yeah it's it's quite a it's it's quite freeing it's really it's really wonderful i think that's why often meditation's called a practice like people will say what what what's your practice meaning what style of of meditation but the word practice is really interesting because it's not about gaining enlightenment in that 30 minutes or hour or however long you meditate it's about practice for the other 23 hours of the day yeah yeah and it, it's it's definitely not about uh, becoming a good meditator in the end i mean it's, it's not about achieving calm in this this a temporary state of calm in a formal session of meditation i mean even if you're spending two hours a day meditating right it's it's there's still most of your life is still elsewhere right and so the real goal is to eradicate this apparent boundary between formal practice and the rest of your life such that you you can recognize that the the clarity you have in your clearest moments in in so-called meditation is is a property of consciousness that can be recognized in any other moment and it's and it's ultimately not about achieving any specific state of mental pleasure or calm because because all of those are vulnerable to the next moment I mean, it's just it's all temporary i mean every state you're you're going to achieve is temporary uh what you want to do is recognize something about the nature of consciousness itself that is always there and one of the things that's always there is this truth about you know the impermanence of thoughts and emotions when when recognized i mean they just they just arise and vanish and they have a dreamlike quality which when you're taken in by the dream when you're when you're asleep and dreaming and you don't know you're asleep and dreaming you know you're safely in your bed but you think you're being you know held hostage by um, narco traffickers right and you're in some emergency right like you're you're just you're psychotic you're actually psychotic when you're dreaming you're just prevented from acting out the consequences of your psychosis because you're paralyzed uh, during REM sleep, you know, ha happily so, or at least most people, you know, people who don't have various sleep disorders. Um, and when you're th lost in thought in the waking state, you're a little bit psychotic. You're a little bit like mm -hmm. your dreaming self, right? You're confused about your circumstance. You don't know which end is up in those moments. You're having a conversation with somebody who isn't even there, right? You're talking to yourself and you're just not, you're not using your mouth right so you don't look like a lunatic who's talking to himself out loud on the sidewalk but you're the lunatic who just knows to keep his mouth shut right and meditation is the only way to break that spell it's the only way to actually recognize what's happening in each moment in fact it is it's not even a something it's not meditation it is a practice you know certainly and seems like that in the beginning but ultimately it's not even something you're doing. It's it's something you're ceasing to do. You're you're doing less of something rather than more of something. You're you're, you know, at least if you're you know, practicing this kind of awareness practice of you know born of of mindfulness, 
you're not adding anything strategically to your experience. You're ceasing to be distracted in the ordinary ways. And that and it's that, it's that non-distraction that is your actual refuge. And so it's, it's sort of seeing more of what is always already happening. You know, thoughts are, are arising on their own you, and you can't know what's going to arise next. And so it is with, with sensations and perceptions. And it's just this flow of experience and you can either recognize it in each moment or you can be in some other state which is analogous to, to, to a dream state, right? You can be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. And then, you know, a pure hostage of whatever the consequences of those thoughts are. You know, if you're thinking thoughts about, you know, that are, that are producing, you know, self-doubt or anxiety or sadness or depression or I mean, we, so much of the time we're telling ourselves a story that is an unhappy one uh, and not noticing it. We're not noticing the, the, the automaticity here. Um, and so to notice it is in that moment to truly notice it, right? And again, this is some subtlety here as to what is, you know, really clearly noticing and what is just more thinking about, in this case, thinking. Um, but to really notice it in a, in a non-conceptual way that makes you available to the nature of your mind prior to being lost in thought is to be free of the problem. Uh, if only for a moment, and that's you know again, I mean, it's something I go go into in a much deeper way in in waking up the app, um, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly useful and and interesting to explore. Well, yeah, and, and we've we've um, it was several years ago, but we when waking up uh, when waking up came out the book and then the app, uh, we had a, a good conversation about this and. Once again, uh, Sam Harris, author of of Making Sense, uh, so many interesting insights. I could, I feel like I could explore these issues for for the rest of my life. Actually, I'm gonna have to go back to school and get yeah. a PhD now. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. <laughs> but th thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. I reached out just the other day, and you came on in, in short notice. It's such a fascinating book. Uh, I hope people get it and and listen to your podcast and and read your other books and download the app and, and everything. And, and thanks once again. Yeah. Thanks, James. I look forward to doing it in person once uh, civilization reboots. So see you on the other side. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm.